Hello and welcome to Maiden Mother Matriarch. My guest today is Nina Power. She's a writer, a philosopher, a senior editor and columnist at Compact Magazine and the author most recently of a new book, What Do Men Want? Masculinity and Its Discontents, which was published in 2022 in hardback and will be published in June 2023 in paperback. We spoke about masculinity, obviously. We spoke about Andrew Tate, pickup artistry, and why there seems to be such an appetite for masculinity influences in the internet age. We spoke about the way in which gender has been made into a consumer item and why straight women seem to be so interested in uh, reading about gay sexuality and romantic fiction about gay men. Uh, we spoke about the, the nature of suffering and about transhumanism and why the... Um, the war on suffering and human nature is never going to be won. We covered a lot. Enjoy. Which do you think is the best critique that you've had of the book? The best challenge to it? Um, yeah, I suppose I suppose one of the, the critiques which I sort of... Um, knew I would get I suppose was actually you you are not bleak enough about men and I got that from <laughs> yep. both men and from women <laughs> which, which what like type of men what politically demographically who 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 which men wanted you to be harder on men as such I mean a lot of my male friends did actually you know they they were like mm. it it's much it's much darker than you than you say but but part of the the point of the book was it was strategically optimistic in the sense that it's also kind of um aspirational no it's it was almost it's almost like a kind of trick i was like well right if men read this book and think oh my gosh this you know a woman thinks that men are are capable of being good and in fact they are good then this is actually something to live up to you know like well we should be you know <laughs> Um, <laughs> like psych themselves into being virtuous <laughs> yeah, exactly it's a sort of like sort of like you know it's like like the opposite of um oh what do you call it you know when you sort of do someone down and then they're like well I am this terrible person you know um <laughs> like like negging no not when a negging well negging well, you'll, you'll know of course negging being a pickup artist uh strategy <laughs> 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 yes, I mean. So, uh, talk a bit about yeah, I, talk a bit about pickup artists because that was that's a section of your book, isn't it? Sure. So I went back and looked at the kind of original pickup artists who were operating before the internet. So there's been these sort of different waves to to steal that phrase from feminism, <laughs> waves of pickup artists. Um, but the original ones <laughs> were famously documented by Neil Strauss in his book called The Game, um, which I think is from the late nineties, even. And and this involved him uh, sort of being mentored by a, a some sort of sleazy guy. And it was all about sort of wearing accessories, wearing a hat, you know, and then women will talk to you if you if you wear a hat. Um, but a lot of it involved going to a bar <laughs> and sort of trying it on with various women, <laughs> often with sort of violent consequences. What era is this roughly? No, I I think I think it's from the late nineties, um, and you know they don't okay. have uh, access to you know any of the contemporary uh, sort of uh, 
things. Actually, yeah, so 2005 actually is a bit later, but it's a very sort of 90s book. I think it's probably he's doing it in early 2000s or something. Mm. And it's, it, yeah, it's him sort of in LA and, you know, it's it's very it's very cheesy. It's a very funny book, actually. It's very self-deprecating as well. Um, but I think since then you've, you've, you've had lots of um, updates to the techniques um, because obviously mm. if women know that men are using particular lines or techniques like negging so you say something negative and you say something positive and at the same time and you kind of create this allure who is this dashing and interesting man who dares to say that my earrings don't shoot suit my dress <gasps> he must be thrilling i must find out more <laughs> about it it's, it's very basic so i think it got a lot more complicated yeah we all um, know about it now so right exactly so and i think there may be more evolutionary psychology sort of ideas came in or they, they were sort of purloined from the discipline. And so men will now talk about hypergamy, the idea that women always uh, marry up or look up. Mm. Uh, that, and, and, and you know, I in the book, I, I don't necessarily say that that's not true. I mean, I think it's a pretty basic way of looking at the world. But, um, you know, and I, I know that in your book as well, in your work, some of, you know, there's a kind of strategic use of, um, I would say, um, kind of Evo psych, um, you know, perhaps in a way to uh, point out that there there are um, important differences between men and women, right? Not uh, physically, mm. uh, mentally, emotionally, um, perhaps even morally, <laughs> um, you know, and that this particular system, yeah. uh, which, I, you know, I think we probably agree, rewards a particular kind of man who is a quite caddish man, you know, so so that the apps... Um, tend towards a very small number of men having access to a very large number of women, but they're not the kind of man um, who you would necessarily want to be, uh, let's say, a father, like a long-term monogamous partner who would mm. actually look after <laughs> offspring. So, you know, there might need to be a bit of sort of retraining of <laughs> both men and women. Or let's let's put it another way. I would put it more in terms of the values, the values that we have in a society. So when we talk about what it is to be a good man, we might want to be very clear and say, well, to be a good man is to be loyal, faithful, you know, protective, caring, strong where it's appropriate, um, you know, committed to family and and those kinds of things, rather than saying, I don't know, rich, flashy, good looking, you know, whatever is is, val- is currently valued um, in our culture. Uh, and the same will go for women, you know, like I, I make it mm. clear that I'm not just saying, oh, men have to be good. It's, it's also on women too. You know, women are also very negatively affected by by the culture and by certain cultural pressures. Um, and, you know, we could all be better <laughs> in any case. <laughs> the person who springs to mind, um, who, as we speak, is currently, I believe, sitting in, in a Romanian jail is, of course, Andrew Tate's who is I, I has become I suppose the 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 figurehead for this particular style of masculinity which has done so well from the era of the pickup artist tinder all of this stuff is there any uh <laughs> are you are you willing to make any kind of defense of Andrew Tate in terms of your, <laughs> as part of your defense of men or is he beyond the pale would you say no, no, I mean, I think, you know, you wrote a very good piece for us, which I think is the definitive piece on Andrew Tate, which people should oh, have a look you. at <laughs> on Compact Magazine, you know, and this was before all of the recent um, arrests and whatever. Yeah. I, mean, I, 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 I think the best way to, to understand Andrew Tate and indeed Jordan Peterson, who's a very different kind of figure, let's be clear, 
um, is as symptoms, right? What they represent is a, is a lack of real, male role models in people, in men's normal life, right? Their everyday life, such that, you know, the, the, an Andrew Tate figure can only become popular in an era when there is an absence of alternatives, you know? So I think mm. half the reason why, why men and, and some women like Andrew Tate is because he seems not to care. He's not sort of bounded by social media anxiety and, you know, niceties or whatever. Mm. He just... He's amazingly confident, yeah. Right, yes, he exudes this, you know, I mean, I I see him as a kind of actor, to be honest, you know, like I feel like he, like, you know, like many Mm. of these social media, they're they're kind of playing a role and you know they of course you can become very successful if you if you present a certain lifestyle oh I'm so suave I can have loads of cars and women and I've got loads of money you know and whatever it's yeah it's grotesque in the sense that it's celebrating precisely the wrong kind of values but again I think it's it's a symptom of this absence of better role models you know in people in in young men's actual lives Mm. So, so that figures like Andrew Tate come to fill a fill a gap, and I, you know, I think um, Paul Joseph Watson did a video um, recently about Andrew Tate, where he makes a similar argument, and you know, and and Watson's argument to some degree is something like, you've been telling young men that they're sort of awful and evil and toxic for years, and then someone comes, a man comes along and says no, you're great, you're a man, you know, being a man is great. Um, it's not really surprising mm. that some people latch onto that and hear in that message something kind of inspiring, you know, even though we would not celebrate the things that Andrew Tate um, celebrates, like uh, infidelity, just, you know, disrespect, money. You know, it's it's a sort of hyper-capitalist... Sex trafficking, um, allegedly. Well, yeah, yes. I, mean, I don't know like, whether that's you know whether he's been um found guilty of that or not um you know and i i don't for mm. anybody i don't think we should um preemptively um you know say whether someone is is guilty of something or not i don't know i don't know mm-hmm. but i, I don't try yeah. it yet but whatever it, so, it is interesting uh, though isn't it that i mean yeah that that he his whole persona was about being a being a pimp but i think we all sort of assumed that it was larping right <laughs> I mean, we don't know whether or not, but it, but it's interesting that it turns out that actually, oh no, like he seemed, as you say, it seemed like acting, it seemed like a persona, it seemed, I mean, this very funny, confident persona, to be fair to him, it, it seemed fake, and um, maybe it actually wasn't. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a, how often does that happen on the internet, right? That it goes in that direction. No, sure, and I it's think funny. there's something you know, very worrying for everybody, like, because it's very easy to form these parasocial attachments and think that we know somebody or, or Mm. that this person represents a good role model when, you know, of course, you're seeing an incredibly artificial (laughs) presentation of 5% of this person's life in which they are basically acting for an audience in order to get money. So, you know, nobody should be having role models from the internet. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Not, not in a kind of uh, serious (laughs) way. I mean, we people and you know we all follow different read writers and and speakers you know and hopefully have a whole plurality of, of of views but yeah I mean I but I understand for young people especially like I say in this into this void or this gap where there isn't um you know these these positive role models or everyone is telling you that you're bad and you should feel awful and you know um 
that these people are going to are going to appear like a, a real alternative, you know. So at the beginning of What Do Men Want, you write about um, two different wars that are being pitched currently. So one war is being pitched against the existence of biological sex and sexual dimorphism, and the other is being um, pitched against men. And I, I've, I wondered when reading that whether what is the connection between these two different wars, which I think are being waged by roughly the same people? <laughs> yes. Is it, the, is, it, is it the same thing? Yeah. I, I think so. I, I think there is a connection. I think, I think you're right. So, I mean, let's, let's clarify a little bit. So on the one hand, as, as people I'm sure are aware, there's a kind of ongoing conceptual, political, social, <laughs> even personal battle um, over the meaning of the word sex and gender. Um, and this is going all the way to, to questions of law, as we've seen in, in Parliament in Scotland, um, as, as to whether these words have, I suppose, a real content and, and in the case of sex, let's say, an immutable aspect, right? So for, for the vast majority of human history, one way or another, we, we have understood that there are two sexes and you can't change sex. Um, and that there are men and there are women and um, and they are different in some ways. Um, men and women and exist similar... is your opening sentence. Yeah. yeah. My, my first, uh, you know, earth shattering <laughs> statement. <laughs> the first line. Um, but 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 honestly, I. You know, I wanted to keep that first line as it is, men and men and women exist, um, in its sort of stupid simplicity, um, precisely because that even that claim has become contentious. Um, you know, you could say, oh, but aren't there other kinds of people other than men and women? You know, what about non-binary people or you know, is is being male or being female some immutable essence, you know, and if you talk about essences, aren't you reducing people to their biological capacity? I mean, of course, you're not. You're not saying anything about what people can do, mm. have to do with it. You're not for a second saying that, you know, because you're a man, you have to do X or Y. Because you're a woman, you have to do it. You know, but I think it's it's manifestly clear that the kind of attempt to pretend that sexual difference doesn't matter in all situations is a mistake. It's not true. It does matter mm. very obviously um, in quite a lot of situations. That doesn't mean that we didn't, we shouldn't therefore treat men and women equally, um, but there might be some differences in that equality. And, and equality is a very complicated question as well. Um, and I don't think all inequalities mm. are bad. <laughs> you know, you can have positive inequality um, as well. And, and we can talk about, you know, difference being actually very beautiful. Um, you know, in some in some contexts, being being weak is beautiful in some contexts, being strong is beautiful. You know, these are opposites, um, but we don't tend to, to essentialize mm. them, uh, you know, all the time. So. Anyway, the, the the discussion has become very stupid in the public discourse, and but also very um, irate and angry. Um, and I do mm. think that the broader trajectory of um, the kind of homogenizing the human, right? So, so kind of eliminating or pretending the differences between men and women don't work, ha don't exist, or don't matter, has a kind of economic basis, right? This is a long trajectory um, that goes through various permutations but the industrial revolution and i think certain kind of modernity um and i know we we sort of mentioned ivan Illich um and the gender the book on gender 
um, that that modern life and and modern industrial life seeks to eliminate the difference between men and women, right, and creates a kind of homogenous human subject, right? And we can see this obviously in the way that you know employment especially in a post-industrial country where most of the jobs are service jobs or knowledge economy. You don't, you don't need sexual difference, right? Could you just introduce Illich for, for anyone who's not heard of him? Because I think that he's, he's such an important thinker on this, on this precise yeah, issue. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so Ivan Illich um, is a, was a great kind of uh, subversive Catholic thinker um, who is sort of famous, I suppose, for his... his, his multi-pronged critique of institutions so his most famous book is called de-schooling society and most of his major texts are from the sort of 70s he's very important in the 1970s he was quite uh, he was very um popular among a whole range of people this is also very interesting it's sort of you know everyone from kind of anarchists mm. to actually kind of right-wing um conservative and christian thinkers and and lots of people in between because he's very idiosyncratic um and i think when he looks at for example education or the health service or any of these big institutional um entities um and he applies a kind of similar um critique of institutions under the the idea that that the um you know the best becomes the worst if you like so so institutions always set out with great intentions right like oh we're going to we're about health you know we're about making people healthy um and through sort of process of uh, institutionalization they they end up doing their opposite so you know health systems end up creating patients who are sick in order to treat them <laughs> for example or schools you might say oh it's about expanding people's minds and teaching them to you know think critically but they end up being kind of like prisons for small people and indoctrination centers so Illich writes this book in 1982 mm. called Gender, which is very controversial at the time and basically sort of gets him very um, shouted at by lots of feminists in particular. But I think that it's worth revisiting at this point, actually, um, for many reasons. But one of the arguments he makes is that previously the differences between men and women played out in terms of their roles and even in terms of tool use, such that sexual difference wasn't even a topic mm. of conversation. Because it was so obvious <laughs> in people's everyday life that it, it was just a kind of reality that was not discussed. And in a way, the moment it becomes a discursive object, that's when we kind of have a problem. And I think that's true. I think the moment that sexual difference as, as a, like comes into focus as something that can be questioned, that can be troubled, that can be subverted, you know, either by women or by men. And, and you know, we can talk about a very complicated um, relationship between some aspects of, of second wave feminism and the current situation we find ourselves in. You know, I don't think um, uh, <laughs> Judith Butler, for example, is a is a feminist. Um, <laughs> controversially, <laughs> do you but, think she's read Illich? I don't think she has. No, I wouldn't have thought so. Illich is not somebody popularly <laughs> read in the in the academy. No, no, um, I, he wasn't on my reading lists when I was no, doing anthropology and women's studies. Not at all. Right, and it, and it should have been, you know, and yeah, I think so. I think, but what we're in, you know, why are we in this in this era in which these things are up for grabs? You know, it's it's got to be economic. It's got to be partly technological. 
you know, and 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 obviously Mary Harrington and and you and others talk about the kind of, you know, the massive um, shifts brought about by the pill and all of those sorts of things. You know, because the the pill obviously um, uh, takes people, you know, cuts off the link between women's behaviour and and the outcome, and um, in a unprecedented mm. way, it makes um more malleable as workers you know they, they can be more oriented towards employment um you know and therefore a bit more like men you know and so this kind of coming mm. together this proximity of men and women i think has created a, a crisis in the in the discussion and the feeling thereof so either you get this situation where it's like oh you can be any of those and you it's just they're just floating signifiers and if you just say I'm one then I am that um you know that's one possibility the other of which is a kind of um proximate resentment that resembles like a sibling relationship and I think this is a lot of what's happening that we we're more like brother and sister um rather than uh, in a different relation you know of, of man and woman and and I think the culture is also infantilized um, everybody, as particularly younger people, and I mean this not to denigrate younger people, but to say the uh, completely the other way around. It's that the markers of adulthood, such as owning a home, being married, having children, you know, the, the typical traditional markers of um, adulthood, having a secure job, are further mm. and further out of reach for a larger number of people. Um, and this forces a, a, a culture, if you like, to become. Um, we were t- I was talking the other day about like cushions. Everything becomes a cushion, right? So you can't get the things you really want, and that you know economically it's really bad. But you can have like really nice coffee, you know, or you can have really nice mm. things, little things. But they don't address the bigger issues at all. But they're For kind of holidays. Sub- yeah, yeah, so they're like little cushions, you know. <laughs> mm, mm. Yeah, the the a chapter in gender. Um, that is so beautiful I think actually is the one where Illich is talking about various um he uses sex to mean the sort of he kind of uses it the opposite way around to the way that say radical feminists use it and that he yes, uses he, gender he, to mean to mean the more yeah, traditional in system gender, Illich uses confusingly in gender, in, right, or he uses it differently from everybody else right yeah so it's, like, so it's so it takes a bit of getting used to when you're when you're reading yeah. <laughs> um but he writes about the the ways in which various um traditional societies have have what we would maybe call gender gender kind of embedded in basic things so the tools chapter that you mentioned like women women use sickles and scythes maybe it's the other way around even when men and women have the same tools they're slightly different for the women it'll be a slightly different serrated blade it will be a slightly different hand or whatever and men and women have distinct agricultural roles so women will always be in charge of cows and men would always be in charge of sheep and so and the example he gives is if if you're a local and you arrive in some village and you see women toiling in the fields and you can tell from a distance because obviously we can all tell from a distance the sex of human figures you can tell from a distance that they're women you'll know what time of year it is because you'll know exactly what they're harvesting or whatever the like that baked baked in difference which yeah is is largely gone well, I mean, there clearly are lots of ways in which we're still, men and women still live very different lives in some ways. But, the, the, the you know, there's a real fight on to try and eliminate every last vestige of of difference, of which, of course, the trans movement is probably the most radical expression. Yeah, for sure. And, and so we have to ask these bigger kind of metaphysical questions about 
you know, why is this happening? You know, what what's so dangerous about difference? You know, or or celebrating sexual difference or recognizing mm. it? Um, you know, it's quite a strange thing, really. It's like why why can't we <laughs> notice it um, where appropriate? Um, and I think this is partly because we've entered into a kind of very disembodied understanding of the world you know that the desire has become very virtual and desire has become the most important thing it's very kind of consumerist and identitarian and it's like well I feel x or I want y and and that's you know that's treated as more important than even factual matters or historical precedent or tradition you know it's a kind of sort of unhinged desire based <laughs> like politics um you know which is is obviously being fought out at the moment you know as if it really is a battle of desire versus reality almost you know like does my desire to to do think you, something or be something matter go on do you think it might as well be um linked to something that you you've you've written about elsewhere which is this um this sort of inability to to accept in a modern liberal paradigm that suffering is part of life that that it is a necessary you know we've spoken about feminine and masculine yin and yang but that you know suffering and 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 joy are also sort of yin and yang and it seems that all of this so much of this political project is about trying to eliminate any last trace of yeah. sadness. Yeah, which, which is completely which is, futile, uh, of course, because it's <laughs> never going to happen. It's even worse than futile. It actually generates more suffering. The desire to eliminate suffering creates more suffering. So it's, yeah, I mean, this is a very key aspect of Illich's work as a, as a whole. But yes, I mean, I feel this very strongly. It's, you know, we, we kind of live in an age, a utilitarian age that seems to want to, um, yeah, pretend that it can make everything safe and eliminate any kind of, um, yeah, pain or suffering. Uh, and and lots of bureaucracies are now kind of just dedicated to this idea that you can sort of preemptively um, stop people from feeling sad or upset or offended you know so whether that's at universities or uh, or worse that you can somehow indulge people's desires even where those desires are delusional dangerous um, and conflict with other people's desires like whose desire in an in an economy of desire whose desire takes precedent right if you say I want to come into your room and I say, I don't want you to. <laughs> like, those are both desires, <laughs> right? But, you know, we, we it ends up in this kind of battle of of wills or, or you know, other reasons why some people's desires are treated as more significant. Um, but, yeah, I, I think mm. suffering, is, it's like, you know, life is suffering. There's, there is lots of pain, even, even when you are, like, I don't know, if you have enough money to live on or whatever you, you know like there are ways of mitigating the worst kinds of suffering and I think most people would like there to be redistribution where appropriate economically right to say you know we don't want to live in a world in which some people are really suffering unnecessarily right how do we you know mitigate some harm right because we we do want to you know if or if somebody needs an urgent operation 
of course, right? We would mitigate harm in this way. Um, but the, I think this, this safetyism, this culture of trying to preempt harm is the problem, right? So that, so, you know, reducing harm becomes not a, something you do in emergency or difficult situations, but rather the structure of the entire culture, you know, where everyone's too afraid to do anything in case they hurt somebody else or do the wrong thing, you know, and that's just terror. I mean, that's just like a kind of, you know, sort of tyranny of, of softness. <laughs> mm, mm. Yeah. that You don't write um, a great deal in the book about um, transgenderism. Are there, are there other things that you might've said Um a year on now yes, from writing sure. the book and, and seeing how the movement has has progressed. Yeah, I mean, actually, in the original draft, you know, I had quite a lot of work about transmasculinity, and I so I didn't want to talk about um, men who think they're women. I wanted to talk about women. It is a book about men, so I wanted to talk about masculinity as seen from women who who want to embrace it one way or another. So I read a lot of trans man trans men's memoirs. Um, and they were actually very interesting and very sympathetic um, in, in, you know, all of the cases of the memoirs I, I read. And and many of the women writing the books w- did not for a second say I was always a man. Right. They they would say things like, you know, I, I grew up as a girl. I was treated as a girl. And in fact, partly in some cases, it was my treatment as female that made me want to be a man because it sometimes it was about a, an attempt to escape trauma where women had been sexually abused or had some violent uh uh you know encounter whether they'd been har- um, harmed by a, a a male uh family member or it or somebody like that um and that they wanted to escape womanhood because they felt that womanhood was associated with being vulnerable and being a victim and they didn't want to be a victim right so this is uh, some of the um, reasoning behind this kind of desire, desire to transition. I um, mean, it was often to blend in to, you know, and, 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 and some women do pass, you know, testosterone is a very powerful drug, you know. So in some of the memoirs where um, people had been embraced in their trans, you know, where they, let's say they, they passed and, and they, there was no question that they uh, were were a man. They were treated as a man, and they were, act, you know, if you see what I mean. And one of the interesting observations um, in one of the memoirs was that as a man, <laughs> um, uh, the writer felt that they that that they were ignored, that actually their feelings counted for nothing. And I thought this is absolutely fascinating because, you know, on the one hand, you've got people screaming about patriarchy and male privilege, and you know how men rule everything and on the other you've got a situation very unusual in human terms where someone gets to see what it's like to be the opposite sex so they're really people are really responding to them you know as a man and this person said well I know what it's like to be both (laughs) and when I was a woman my emotions were taken much more seriously if I was upset for example at work people would be worried about me whereas when I was a man people just didn't care how I felt I was ignored I thought wow (laughs) <laughs> that's interesting when i interviewed um ray blanchard some years ago about he's the the the, the um the scientist who coined the term autogynophilia and who has um who introduced the, the classification system for 
um, transsexualism, as it was then called, I think now 20, 30 years ago. Hugely controversial, of course, and largely rejected by um, trans activists. One of the questions I had for him was, is there a female counterpart to autogynophilia? Are there any women who are sexually motivated to transition um, because of a fantasy of being male? And he said, no, not as such. It's not exactly the same thing. But that there are sometimes women who are very um, sort of captivated by the idea of being gay men and of having sex like gay men. So it's not it's not it's not an exact counterpart to gynophilia, but it is a kind of um, um, sexualized interest in gay masculinity. And I found it, it's a really interesting idea. And I've come, I've since come across people who do seem to potentially be fitting them or that's part of their motivation for transitioning um, in terms of how they, 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 they speak about their own desires and experiences. And it's interesting one because I, I kind of get it. And it's something that I've also, I've spoken to other female friends about this, straight female friends about this, this kind of, there's something about gay masculinity, which to straight women who are so, um, so much more physically vulnerable in any sexual encounter and have so much more to fear from pregnancy and violence and all the rest of it. There's something like the fantasy of being, whether or not it's true fantasy, the, 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 the imagined fantasy of being this kind of completely hedonistic, completely, you know, equally matched with the objects of your desire. It's a, very, so it's a specific type of masculinity, which I think straight, a lot of straight women actually are really, really attracted to. Yes, I mean, let's be clear, I don't think all gay men behave like that, though, either. I mean, you know, I... I no, 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 it's a particular image, yeah. You know, and not seen and whatever, or or, or are um, sexually faithful. Mm, mm, mm. Um, but but I, I think I think maybe what part of what is this motivation, and I, yeah, I, I can imagine that desire. I And when I think about it, I think, oh, but isn't it... Because it, it's more like, you know, extreme male behaviour without female influence is kind of is is so unconstrained male sexuality is sort of at one end of the pole and I mean this is almost um regardless of sexuality so this is another way of thinking about sexuality which isn't really to do with the modern way we define gay or straight but rather let's say at one end you have extreme female sexuality which is sort of almost non-existent <laughs> like lesbian bed death um and that the other you have sort of completely unencumbered free male sexuality without constraint let's say hypothetically without kind of social mores or norms um and you know I, I have i have uh male friends gay and straight who talk about uh you know who've had periods or or are or you know extreme forms of sexual behavior where where sex is like the only thing on your mind and that's kind of all you want to do and it's kind of all kind of dominating and a lot of men say when they get older they're actually really relieved that they don't have to <laughs> think about mm. it anymore um yeah but I but I can see yes I mean it, imagining I suppose a sexual persona or life in which you are not uh encumbered by worry or you know, fidelity or, you know, that you could just be this free expression of sexual desire or something like that. And I, I think quite a lot of the, um, a lot of those Japanese comics, for example, uh, sort of marketed to, to teen mm. girls, actually very sentimental, very romantic gay male stories. And 
Perhaps there's something about this imaginative yeah. exercise, you know, thinking, oh, isn't it beautiful seeing two men sort of in this very hyper romantic, but it's, but it's almost like the kind of romanticism that is designed for teenage girls, which is like hyper sentimental. Um, so you've got to yeah. sort of sexualize. There's a very funny South Park that. episode about this. Mm. And then a sort of romanticized gay, uh, gay idea. I mean, you know, I, I think what, what's interesting about straight women and gay men is that they both fancy men. <laughs> Let's be clear. Right. So this is actually something they have in common. Um, and sometimes gay, ma- gay men are very rivalrous with straight women. You know, I've been in situations where gay men are kind of like being unbelievably bitchy. Right. And I'm not even I'm not trying to be sexy. Right. Or anything. But they'll make kind of all these sorts of comments about appearance and dress and da da da. Right. As if we're somehow like in competition. And it's like we're, we're really not like. <laughs> um so but then again these kind of weird proximities you know this idea of of straight women being sort of besotted with the with the idea of gay male sexuality and 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 i think it's i think it's a, a an idea that's attractive because of the way it's been packaged in a really consumerist way so you mentioned the japanese fiction intended for teenage girls slash fiction in for western english speaking audiences is similar there's this whole kind of um it feels very consumerist to me it feels as if it's something that 100 200 years ago would never have even crossed the minds of adolescent girls to think that to think that being a gay i mean it's just unthinkable for so many different reasons and i i it feels like that's so much of what ha- what goes on with gender now that we we we're constantly being presented with these different kind of fantasies and and packaged up products presenting different gender options to us Andrew Tate obviously being one of them a completely different product from you know um that must be warping particularly young minds right when thinking about their their gender and sexual identities definitely I mean this kind of total abstraction and also you, you know the invention of homosexuality as an identity is also fairly recent you know, we could say there's always yeah. been homosexual behaviour among human beings, um, but it's only recently that we would have, you know, thought of being gay or gay particular activities, whether they're straight or gay, as something that you would need to label and say this person is X, right? So the problem is more that this person is X or I am X move, right? Because that what that does is it kind of cuts people off from any story of like becoming the fact that we're all works in progress. We, we, you know, we go through loads of different phases in our lives, you know, and it pins us to, like you say, a kind of consumerist identity, um, which is actually very, it it seems liberating, but it's actually not right. It's the opposite. (laughs) It means that you kind of end up Mm. stuck um, and then you sort of have to prove it. Oh, you have to prove that you're X. (laughs) And also potentially just sort of petrified by choice, like being presented with the, all of these different... I really think it's Judith Butler, actually, who uses this metaphor of the wardrobe of gender, where you go to your wardrobe and you have this, like, array of different outfits and you can put on for the day. And to be fair to her, I think she's she's using it... She's saying that actually this isn't true, you know, that we don't actually have that degree of freedom because so much of our gender identities are imposed on, on us. And that's, you know... And in, in her view, that's a bad thing. And obviously she would say, I imagine that, the, you know the French peasants that Illich writes about, who have these, 
incredibly set gender roles down down to the very agricultural tools that you're using and the animals that you're that you're looking after and so on the the modern queer theory and so forth would say that this is terribly oppressive but then yeah. are people really i don't know if people are really substantially happier <laughs> with this like uh suddenly being given the opportunity to try on as many different gender roles as they like at any time that they like i would say that people don't look like they're having a lot of fun they look like they're very anxious <laughs> they're themselves and they're mm. you know incredibly worried about being cancelled and whatnot like it's not fun this is not like a kind of playful you know hedonic kind of polyvalent performance thing this is oh dear like <laughs> you know people who are unhappy for one reason thinking that they're unhappy for another mm. you know doing potentially drastic things to themselves um and it not actually solving the problem i mean again if if we had a sort of more widespread culture of tragedy and an understanding of suffering we we might come to understand that that actually you know there is no solution really <laughs> to some of these problems you know like you will be miserable things will be sad you know you will feel grief you will feel pain you you know there isn't anything that's going to like eliminate those i mean the only thing you can really do is choose how you you feel about it you know of course you you know everyone can take certain steps and there are definitely things that make human beings happier than others, like being in community, whether it's being in family, you know, with family, having a family, being with other people, being a member of something, you know, these having a pet, <laughs> going for walks outside, you know, there are, there are obvious things that um, do improve <laughs> spirits. Um, and they are pretty much the same for everybody. But I think this, yeah, this is sort of sad. You know, it's very, it's very sad if you tell people, like, you have to be an individual. You know, it's actually very, it's very tricky. You know, it's a, it's a lot of pressure on people. It's, it's, it's sort of nicer not to be an individual. <laughs> At least in one <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the things you just listed, all the things that, that reliably improve mood, they're all things um, that are basically what our stone age ancestors would have expected to do on a daily basis you know being outside um being with <laughs> close relatives and you know all day and all of this kind of stuff is looking at landscapes i mean these are just like basic stone age kind of daily routine and it, it it's it's one of the reasons why i'm very skeptical about transhumanism as i know that you are as well because I think that the various goals that transhumanists have set themselves to, you know, increase longevity, um, to give us more choice with, I mean, of course, transgenderism is, can be understood as one, one yeah. aspect of transhumanism, this idea that we could, should have this amazing ability to transform our bodies, to conform to our, our minds or our wills, um, to become more intelligent, to, to, you know, all of the things that they're aiming to do. I see no reason to think that just because we maximise all of those qualities that we'd actually become any happier <laughs> because we'd still have Stone Age brains unless we're completely overhauling the whole system and then we're not humans anymore at all. No, I, 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 no, I mean, I agree with you. I, I think we, it's very obvious that those are the things that make us happy. And for some reason, again, with this desire to sort of do something rather than nothing, we've created... <laughs> enormous amounts of complexity um well we didn't sort of need to really like 
you know, we could have spent more time just sort of like looking at the stars and, you know, we've, we've sort of saved all this time, but for what? So that people can be more unhappy. It's, it's, um, it's bizarre, you know, and I'm very obsessed with these like megaliths, you know, I go to Avery quite often. And if you, you can spend like eight hours at Avebury and just sort of wander around the stones and, you know, of course, it's great pleasure. It's great fun to think, what were our early ancestors? Can we even understand them? Can we understand the men and women who, who built Avebury and Stonehenge? And, you know, are they, are they human in the way we, we were? You know, it's endless, fascinating questions. But, but uh, you know, I, I, I did come to a sort of realisation. I was like, well, I think they just liked hanging out with each other at the stones. <laughs> you know that that's what it was for <laughs> like yeah. it was actually just to sort of collect you know maybe there were some you know wise women who could heal wounds or you know maybe they like obviously the sort of calendrical thing maybe it's to do with seasons and you know maybe it's to do with a festival harvest maybe some sort of sacrificial thing but that, but ultimately what is it really about <laughs> it's just like lots of people coming together to sort of do do something um and here's how you mark the place it's like come to this place (laughs) (laughs) can I tell you something funny I was I was in the British Library um last week reading Gender the Illich book for the first time in full I'd read bits and pieces but I, I wanted to read it in full before I spoke to you and um I went to the the loo part way and these are so the British Library have actually done this thing where they've um they changed the labels on the doors to the loo. So they now have, um, it, it looks worse in the photos that were shared on Twitter, but they're like, there's one loo which basically has women and miscellaneous as the other one. Cause they've just, sorry, they've had men and then they have miscellaneous, including. Yeah. Men. I, I think I saw the um, so they've done all this. Yeah. yeah it yeah. doesn't, it's not quite as bad as it looks cause they do elsewhere have a woman only, but whatever that, um, they've played funny buggers with the labels <laughs> and I went in and someone had written a Ted Kaczynski quote on the inside of the toilet door. And I thought, um, I mean, it occurred to me, I wonder what, 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 is there a relationship between Illich and Kaczynski in terms of, are you aware of there being a link between what Kaczynski having, having read him or, Um, because it seems like the, 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 the central idea is very similar. Yes, I mean, I, I, like, Illich does not um, condone terrorism. I mean, let's be clear, right? Like, Kaczynski's actions, you know, were, were murderous. So, so, I mean, you know, like, you know, there's diagnosing a situation and there's quite another recommending, you know, particularly violent action as a consequence. But, I, yes, I mean, let's also be clear. I, I think they're both very, very um, sceptical of, of mod of modernity of modern society um you know Kaczynski is much more brutal you know he says we have to rip the plaster off now um otherwise we'll just keep coming back to this same point um we have to kind of um totally uh end uh sort of modern industrial society as it were I mean Illich is also religious right so Illich is coming from a religious perspective which is uh, is very important he, he's not you know, he's very critical of the church because the church is also an institution, let's be clear, that has its problems, like any institution can be corrupted. Um, you know, it, but Illich takes a lot from a religious sensibility, which includes emphasising the importance of prayer, stillness, silence, acceptance, um, and all of these sorts of uh, gestures and behaviours which are uh, often 
eliminated in the modern world or they come back in some kind of horrible form like oh you have a stressful job well why don't you go and do mandatory well-being you know whatever half an hour and then you'll feel better so Illich's whole approach to the to the modern world is is really um, a spiritual one and also kind of one in favor of 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 understanding that we are also part of nature right then this is again a kind of great separation in modernity the idea that we're somehow post nature or our own nature is to to transcend nature um you know and it, and it's just not true i mean all of these discussions about ai for example like the, the simple point about ai is that ai doesn't have a body right ai might be able to write code it might be able to you know, re reconfigure sentences in a, a structurally, grammatically, moderately okay way, but but AI, right, is is not embodied. AI is not a place. AI is not a thing. <laughs> you know, AI, like whatever form of intelligence AI uh, manifests. I mean, not only is it a kind of copy of ours, um, and and you know, we can talk about different kinds of intelligence, but but. AI is not, I suppose, comparable to us. It might be able to do certain things for us, or, but it can't be us, and we can't be it, you know, and, and it won't replace us, you know, in the strict sense that we are not who we are without our bodies. And we don't have a human body. We have a male body or a female body, right? This is also one of Illich's great revelations, you know. It seems very, very silly, obvious thing to say, but... You know, humanity is is composed of two sexes, and you are one or the other, and you know, and that's actually really significant. And we forget that, like, you know, when we talk about the human, we we maybe have a kind of abstract image of, you know, maybe a sort of male-ish body, but like maybe a new, neutral body. But what is that? Like, there is no <laughs> human body. Um. And I think this kind of dualism, this this you know, this sexual difference as dualism is so unbelievably profound and cosmic as a thought. Um, you know, and I think Illich realizes this and spends a long time with that thought. You know, and it's it's not really a surprise that this dualism is at the basis, I mean, of, of Christianity in terms of the, the origin story, but also and in a way much more profoundly at, at the basis of some Eastern religions, you know, that the cosmic dualism is also male or female, you know, and, and, and Christianity is sort of maybe a bit odd in that regard, right? Because there is a subsumption um, and, and you could say, well, Chris liberalism is the end result of Christianity in some ways. Um, that's a sort of complicated, <laughs> yeah. complicated story, yeah. but this might involve the way in which um, we've ended up with a sort of uh, imaginary neutral fantasy of, of the human, as it were a sort of de-sexed human. And I suppose the thing about um, Illich's writing, which I presume infuriated feminists at the time and will infuriate some feminists still, is that he doesn't see, um, where most feminist theory sees hierarchy and exploitation, he sees, he does see that, but he sees at a deeper level a kind of um, essential complementarity between male and yeah. female and between masculinity and femininity and it's a, a, and a necessary complementarity in order to basically build civilization um and that's not i think by any means a universally accepted idea and maybe increasingly 
you know, bringing it back to your book, the, the, you know, the, the, the opposition to men, the opposition to masculinity does not see um, maleness as, as an essential part of the yin and yang. It sees, it sees oppositional where Illich sees complementarity. Exactly. Um, I think that's really, really important. Um, but, you know, there is complementarity. Let's be clear. None of us would be here, <laughs> right? Unless there had been yeah. some. <laughs> yes, at the cellular you know, level. However, <laughs> yeah, however temporary, however fraught, <laughs> you know, that there, there would be some mm. nice aspects to men and women hanging out, <laughs> at least for a while. Um so, you know, let's be clear, I, I think the, the idea that men and women are, are at war um, is encouraged. It definitely is, right? Like with, there is a media that encourages this narrative and, and seeks to create division between the sexes and, and allows both men and women to feel resentment, to express their resentment at the opposite sex, right? This is one of the easiest ways you can control people is by saying whatever you haven't done in your life whatever disappointment you have hey look there's a whole group of people over here you can blame it on <laughs> right and we know you can do this to lots of different groups and i i do think it's really uh, again symptomatic and depressing that uh, women who who talk about women's rights and defend sexual difference you're allowed to hate them <laughs> at the moment you know you if you're a turf you're a sort of woman you're allowed you know that you're the the, the culture in some places allows you to to hate, even though most people would agree, actually, in, in reality, with the kind of concerns that a lot of women have been raising around, you know, changes to same sex spaces and so on. Because actually, when people think about it, they're like, oh, yeah, no, that like, let's talk about it at the very least. Right. Most people are, very, are reasonable. Um, but, you know, the, the discourse mm. has been shifted in a sort of crazy way. And. You know, we've seen some very sort of horrible scenes lately of of men, like in Parliament, uh, you know, screaming at women, intimidating them. You know, in very the most public of places, uh, being very um, aggressive because some women refuse to agree with them. You know, that women are presenting a different picture, and I think we're also coming up the limits of a sort of democracy, which is again predicated on the idea of a neutral human subject or voter, or participant, because actually, in reality, different people and men and women have different interests. Like, that's the truth. You know, we don't always coincide. We have different interests because we have different bodies, you know, and we have different concerns, therefore. And in a sort of a system that seeks to flatten out all those differences and, and tell oh, you're either with us or against us or you're part of the party or whatever, this becomes a problem. So women become a problem from the standpoint of a very flat democratic image. Yeah, because it, I mean, particularly when it comes to things like childbearing, women just have very, very specific needs as well as contributions that they're obviously making, but that the, the, they present a problem to this kind of, uh, I suppose it's equity rather than equality, um, maybe is, is, is really yeah. hard to reconcile with sexual difference. Thinking about they just just you mentioned this uh, the the parliamentary foray going on at the moment about as it as it uh, you know endlessly about gender recognition stuff. Um, polling I was looking at the other day finds that m British men are in general more scepticism of the trans movement than are women, and actually on almost every point 
um, a majority of British men are opposed to the demands of trans activists. So the only thing that a narrow majority of British men are willing to countenance is social transition, but actually a majority are anti-legal transition. Um, with clearly the exception of some extremely uh, vociferous individuals, um, individual men who who really, uh, who I think really do see this as an opportunity to just shout at women with license. Yes. And they seem to get very, very angry at women who 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 don't who are not being sufficiently caring, is not being sufficiently nice. I mean, I think Freud would have all sorts of things to say about this, right? The sort of like frustrated desire for a for a maternal figure. Um, but I, I wondered if I was I was thinking about the what you said at the top of the the top of this show about um, the fact that actually many of the people who criticised you for not being harder on men were men who said you're under you're understating the, the degree of darkness in the male soul and i wonder if that might partly be what's motivating men to be more skeptical of the trans movement is that that men maybe have a more um uh realistic understanding of male depravity because of pro- their proximity to it and the potential for you know laws being exploited for instance which maybe we yeah, don't know about that's an interesting argument I mean I was talking to someone the other day and they were asking me the counterpart to that argument which is why why do um, quite a lot of women seem to support the trans movement right mm. which is the counterpart to your your, <laughs> your question fewer right? in so recent years do... interestingly yeah that that yeah that women are becoming less supportive but yeah you're right they are still but, a lot of them but, okay but let's, let's say what is going on right when some women prioritize men who say they're women over women saying hang on a minute you know we don't want our rights mm. trampled on right so what is the what is the uh you know feeling or argument or reasoning that's going on <laughs> in that woman's head right and i you know there's lots of potential answers i think um one of which is you know you could say it's like slightly mis- misguided maternal feeling like a feeling of pity or compassion you know oh gosh you know this man must feel so sad that the only thing he can do is is become a woman isn't, isn't that awful you know which has a kind of really like mm-hmm. uh, sort of strange misogyny and almost self-hatred at its core potentially you know because that you know it's like the worst thing a man can do is be is be a woman ah how terrible how you know how awful yeah um that's <laughs> one possibility i suppose um another of which is is um i i don't know i mean maybe like yeah a kind of uh, maybe another form of like disavowed relation to the self you know oh you maybe some female socialization is about like not putting yourself first and and you know like caring about other people's feelings and and you know someone says oh this is how I feel okay you know it's my job to sort of help and mediate and you know I I don't know like it's a socialization is a very complicated thing to to talk about but I think I don't know I'd be curious what you what you think is being tapped into there um because it is true like a lot of the trans activists are not trans but but are female I mean some of the you know, many people who go after me are women. There's one woman in particular who's kind of completely mm. obsessive, and um, <laughs> you know, and she's, as far as I can, I don't know her at all, but she she seems to be a maybe a divorcee, but like a heterosexual woman. You know, so what's going on there? You know, why why is she so so adamant to protect trans women against you know against women or against women's rights? 
hard to say. <laughs> I tend to favour the yeah. I tend to favour the misplaced paternal instincts um, theory, which would also explain why it's disproportionately younger and younger women who've not had children who've not not yet had children who, who gravitate towards this movement. I think there is this very strong urge within women to to care for the vulnerable and trans activists have done a really really good job of representing themselves as being the most vulnerable of the most vulnerable um yeah and maybe the reason why mumsnet is ground zero for british transphobia so-called is because maybe maybe women who've had children are less are less likely to feel that way i mean it's clearly not universally true because very many of the most um uh vociferous feminist voices on this are um lesbian women who don't have children or other other women who don't have children it's not it's not by any means an absolute pattern match but i think there is something about this agreeableness caring instinct which obviously i, I think is probably partly innate um yeah yeah but I is also aggravated by socialization i think socialization elaborates on it yeah no no i, I agree with that um yeah I don't, I don't think it's socialization when i say socialization i don't mean something that's purely socially constructed as it were right i i think um you know socialization, socialization is always on the basis of a reality right you know whatever we do with it like it's you know there's something there that's being kind of um, drawn out um yes and i i think it also when we look at some of the parents of, of so-called trans children you know some of their motivations are also very dark right like you know we can talk about munchausen's by proxy or we can talk about homophobia you know, wanting to have a sort of special child, you know, this, there is a lot going on <laughs> in those um, adults who even where, where women are mothers in those, you know, some of these cases uh, with their sons and daughters, you know, like, and, and that's very, some of this stuff is just really hard to think about because it's really upsetting and it's easier not to think about because, you know, there are lots of really, really dark things in the world. <laughs> Um, and where people have kind of followed something where yeah. because they've been told it's a good thing and it's a civil rights movement and you know if you if you're a good person you'll support the vulnerable and here are some vulnerable people uh, to actually take a step back and go hang on and not just take the step back but then go no actually this is really really dis dis disturbing destructive violent and um, you know potentially like uh, illegal and and you know children are being harmed and you know then that that's a whole like cavalcade of horror right that psychically people might want to go no i don't want to go down that route <laughs> i don't want to think about it um but i think i think more and more people are kind of understanding whether it's the children thing i i think many people are you know rightly very disturbed by the idea that young children can make life-changing decisions about their fertility about their bodies um on the basis of 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 nothing you know there is no evidence that suggests that any of this uh, addresses the the issue that any of this makes um anyone unhappy and as we uh, less unhappy and that you know, we know that when people grow up, you know, I mean, when I was 14, I had loads of sort of silly ideas about things. And if I asked my 14 year old, oh, do you want to make a decision that's like you have to live with when you're 40? I mean, I would hope people would say, no, of course you can't yeah. do that. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm going to let you go in a minute. I just wanted to ask one last question, which um, I'm not going to ask you to do the thing that, you know, 
I'm not going to ask you to give me a, a note of hope to end on, but I would like you to give some sort of prediction for where you think it's clear. I think that we're not in a very good place. <laughs> Do you think it is likely that this is only going to become further embedded, that, that all the trends you identify in your book are going to just continue along the same trajectory? Or do you think that there's likely to be some sort of, not necessarily a swing back, but a sort of a further undulation? Is 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 is, is history going to prove circular, circular again? Would you say? Well, just as, a small question. <laughs> you know, I'm speaking from the right side of history, Louise, uh, which I hope you are also on. Um, <laughs> You know, because I, of course, know what's going to happen. Um, and I definitely know how you'll be judged by history. Um, so anyway, no, but I actually, I mean, I think my book is, is, uh, is optimistic. It is very hopeful, like, it, but it's on the basis of um, what already exists. Like, so, so basically, we already have lots of nice relationships. Like, you know, there are many men in my life that I really, really love, you know, and I don't think I'm particularly unusual in loving like male family members, male friends, male partners, you know, like, of course, there are there are some terrible men, let's be clear. And I talk about that in the book. Um, it's not some kind of uh, attempt to whitewash male, you know, capacity for violence and harm. Um, we're all capable of harm as well. Let's be clear. Women also have very, you know, ways of being unpleasant <laughs> and manipulative and mean um, and so on. But uh, I, yeah, how to put it. So so I say, look, you know, we already have these these great relations and we shouldn't let um, the media and other things sort of tell us otherwise. You know, these are abstractions, you know, this idea of toxic masculinity, all men are X, blah, blah, blah. Right. We we know that that's not true in practice, in the real world. Right. So we should be careful where people are trying to tell you a narrative, particularly where it's one which says, oh, and you're allowed to hate this group of people. And this will make you feel slightly better. Right. So when we're talking about the trans thing, I think we should also be like very clear that this is not about, you know, because it's always positioned as if, oh, you hate group X. Therefore, we're allowed to hate you. Right. Like this is a classic strategy as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Only the first move of you're allowed to hate group X because group X are incels or toxic men or, you know, turfs or whatever, right? Like, you know, and, and we've seen this plot in history a million, million times. But there's a further move which says, you're allowed to hate these people because they hate, you know, it's like the meta hate move, you know, like, so you're allowed to hate hmm. turfs because they hate trans Because they're haters. Right? <laughs> yeah. But they don't, like, I, you know, there is no, there is no hatred in this, um, concern in fact it's the opposite it's a kind of love actually especially for children who feel unhappy or teenagers who feel unhappy is to say we need to be more compassionate but we also need to be more realistic and give people the tools to navigate life which includes suffering and unhappiness and to say to them there is no solution to this right you can learn to live in your body you can learn to love it you can exercise you can look after it you can appreciate you for who you are whoever you are and you don't need to change yourself in order to do that you don't need to have serious surgery you don't need to take medicine do you know what I mean right so so the thing that looks like or is being painted as hate is actually a serious form of love and compassion for um you know, the, the, the children and the adolescents that we can all imagine and remember ourselves being as well, 
this is also the the important thing we can imagine we can remember what it's like to feel so everybody you know who has a nice adolescence right nobody does it's of course it's it's pretty like rocky um for everybody at least at a certain moment you know very few people say or throw it uh easily um but it's it's vital to to become an adult you know to become mature and 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 we can't um pretend that we should stop that or we should delay it um in certain cases we 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 cannot we we just need to give people the tools so i do think um things are becoming more realistic i actually think the culture is becoming a lot more interesting after a period of sort of frozenness and and uh fear so i would get cite as recent examples the film tar i don't know if you've seen this film very interesting film with kate blanchett and desperate to it's a film it's a very serious very adult film that basically seems to plant its uh, flag in the sand and say right we are not bowing down to this woke stuff we are we want to make films that are morally ambiguous about morally ambiguous figures uh, about genius about art you know we are making art about art and the importance of art and the eternal qualities of art you know and we are not doing this identitarian stuff we are not reducing art to who you are it's it's you know it's it's quite a powerful film <laughs> so i think there is a uh, you know a, a lot of people saying like no we 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 need we want to talk we want to talk to people we disagree with you know and that we mostly do get on but social life is quite difficult and there will be upset there will be mistakes there will be harm but we can actually also deal with it we can get over it and where we can't then we need to be um clear about you know, what we do with people who behave in systematically antisocial ways, right? So where men are saying, you know, I want access to children or to do harm or where they have done harm, you know, we need to be clear that this is absolutely completely unacceptable, right? That this is not an identity. This is not a sexuality or a desire that we would condone, but rather as a society, we completely 100% do not um, want this. We do not want adults abusing children. Right. So it's like, you know, I think there is a kind of need for everybody to sort of grow up again (laughs) somehow. Um, But I think that's I think that is happening. Um, And I think people are becoming more and more aware of these antisocial tendencies, these kind of uh, character types that actually affix themselves to institutions and are very manipulative. You know, we need to be both more trusting and more suspicious of uh, particular desires or the way in which particular desires are manifested right we're never going to eliminate evil we have to live with it and we have to understand it in ourselves and in other people um and we have to kind of face it i suppose um and this would include the people who think they're doing a good thing by you know cancelling people and getting people fired you are not doing a good thing you are doing an evil thing (laughs) and you will have to realize it right what a great note to end on. I didn't ask for hope, but you did give us a little bit of it. Um, where can uh, viewers and listeners um, find more of your work, Nina? Where can they, where can they read you and listen um, to you further? Yes. Yeah, so, so the main thing I'm doing is, is Compact Magazine, which is bringing together people with loads of different opinions uh, from right, left, religious, non-religious. Uh, it's a it's a great place for me as somebody who's very committed to dialogue and disagreement and working out what the real issues are. And I'm very, very grateful to be working um, for such a magazine. Uh, so that's based in America, but it's online. So it's kind of available. Uh, and I'm an editor there at Compact Magazine. Um, 
And yeah, I had, I had this book out on men that we were talking about um, in February. The paperback is coming out in June this year um, called What Do Men Want? And it was published by Penguin. Um, and I have a silly Substack, which is just my name at Substack, um, where I write kind of random prose poems that don't bear any relationship to anything else. <laughs> Nina Power, thank you so much.